This crisis resulted in a whole bunch of people having to work under very strange conditions, yet in many instances, we're still able to get things done. It's amazing the resiliency. Things are still progressing in certain pockets. So it raises a real question some executives are thinking through, which is, what is the real value add we do? That's Terry Stone, who leads Oliver Wyman's Health and Life Sciences practice. Today, Terry joins our Oliver Wyman colleague, Helen Lees, who has worked with the CDC to develop their pandemic preparedness and response protocols. Both women are here to explore views from a COVID report they co-authored called The Long Haul, Getting Back to Work in a Changed Economy. To read this report, check out our show notes. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. Follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and read our healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Helen Lees, and I'm a partner in our health and life sciences business. And I'm Terry Stone, and I'm also a partner in our health and life sciences business. And Helen and I have spent a lot of time over the last nine weeks um, working through with other colleagues in our firm and clients in the market, thinking about the impact of COVID-19 and what this will mean for businesses going forward. And today, we're going to talk about um, a topic we wrote about a few weeks back, where we coined this next phase after the first um, phase one surge of COVID-19, the long haul of suppression. Um, what's going to happen over this next nine to 12 months? I think executives are starting to realize it doesn't just snap back and that what the next nine to 12 months might look like is very different. And we're starting to see executives thinking about how does this pandemic impact what the new normal going forward looks like? And is it an opportunity for businesses to rethink some of their assumptions that they used to have and rethink how they, um, how they operate? So Helen, you've done a lot of work on this topic, and why don't you talk a little bit about why is it that we think that things are not just going to snap back to normal? Why, why are we likely to be in an awkward stage of a very long period of hybrid work from home, limited people at a work site? What, what's going on? There's a couple things that underpin it. I mean, we are starting to see people move around more than they were previously. We look at a lot of mobility indices, and they are ticking up, but nothing is back to pre-COVID levels yet. And we think that's partly because consumer confidence isn't coming roaring back yet. So we'd survey consumers every week to get a feel for how they're spending money, how they're shopping, how they're thinking about going out. And only about 40% said they would feel comfortable going out to a restaurant or being in other settings with crowds like theaters or stadiums. And in the meantime, employees whose jobs require them to leave home are also worried about doing so. 60% of them have said they fear exposing their families to the virus. And those percentages are even higher when you look at African-American or Hispanic workers who are worried about it. So people who often have underlying health risk being even more concerned about what this means to go back to work. What is your view on a lot of things that are out there, right? It's testing's a challenge, questions about vaccine and when we'll have one. Talk a little bit about what you know there and why we think what this means for the certainty or uncertainty in the coming months. Share a little bit about what you've been seeing. Sure. So I think when this first started, the holy grail that people were pinning all their hopes on was a vaccine or a direct treatment that would be a therapeutic breakthrough. And what we know about vaccines is that they take a long time to develop, right? They're organic, they're cultured, they're grown rather than manufactured. For example, a chemical would be in a factory. And if you look at other coronaviruses, we don't have a vaccine for any other coronavirus yet. When there's been some work done on 
the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus vaccine development. There's been work done for SARS on a vaccine. We don't have anything yet. So when you hear talk of like, we could have a vaccine by next year, that is true. We could have a vaccine within the next 12 months. That's an extremely aggressive timeline. I think more realistically, we're looking at multiple years. Maybe it's two years, maybe it's four. So if you can't pin your hopes on getting back to normal economic activity on a vaccine, then you have to look at, well, what's part of a smart containment strategy? And a big, big element of that is testing. And partly because it gives transparency for consumers and employees to feel comfort and safety in circulating. And also because it's literally the lever that you use to pounce on an outbreak as you see it emerge, rather than waiting for it to spread um, kind of insidiously as we saw in the US in January, February, March, where you have a really severe situation on your hands if you're not testing. You and I both know there's lots of data out there, lots of facts. And so I think there's lots of conflicting points of view based on how one interprets the facts, right? But the truth is, would you say it's fair that the facts about this virus still remain the same? It's still much more contagious than other things. It spreads much more quickly. And the severity rates as a percent of the population who get quite sick, it's a lot higher than other diseases or conditions. It's what we were all worried about. It's why we didn't want to have what was happening at times in Italy. If you could have imagined that level of overload in the healthcare system, if that was occurring in 15 other European major cities and in 15 or 20 major metros across the U.S., that would have put lots of shockwaves through the system and concern to the stock market and other things, right? So early on, as people started seeing how quickly this thing can rip through the population, I think people started to realize that consumers weren't adapting their behaviors. And so policymakers wound up having to clamp down really severely. Would you say that's fair? Yes. I think blunt shutdown measures across the world are pretty severe. Right. And this (laughs) is at a time where people were going, I don't think this thing's any worse than the flu, right? But I know lots of folks listening to this are on the healthcare front and realize, no, it is quite different. I feel like we're now living in a world where you got a lot of people going, see, I told you this wasn't that big a deal. Everyone blew this all out of proportion versus looking at it. The analogy I make is no one ever becomes famous for preventing a terrorist attack that nobody ever knew was going to happen anyway. So we actually, we did flatten the curve. The blunt shutdown did ensure that we flattened the curve and it meant that a whole bunch of other cities didn't get even close to the levels that New York City saw, for instance. And even New York City was able to contain it from getting to total overload mode. It was really, there were bad days in New York and there was a lot of strain and stress, but we didn't completely overload the system. But as a result, we didn't overload it in LA, Dallas, Chicago, Philadelphia. So the shutdown worked. Now we're in a period where we're opening up and we're opening up with a whole bunch of people going, see, I thought it wasn't that big a deal in the first place. Talk a little bit about what you think that means. Like, has anything materially yeah. changed between beginning of March and now? We're almost approaching June. Yeah, so there is nothing substantively different from a science point of view in terms of what do we have to treat it or stop the spread. But what's different is we have awareness now and we have an increased understanding of how this thing spreads and what we have to do to contain it. So, for example, In the beginning, we thought that you should put the mask on the very sick person to protect the people around them, right? We've now learned from multiple studies, Vogue Italy, Iceland, the Diamond Princess, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, that there is asymptomatic spread. The WHO has offered a fairly wide estimate of somewhere between 6% and 41% of people who have COVID but haven't experienced COVID symptoms. So in light of stats like these, and until we know more, It's not enough for just the visibly ill person to wear a mask. Everyone really needs to be wearing a mask in public because you may be carrying the virus, be contagious, and not have symptoms. 
It's also prudent to wear masks in public if we want to avoid future shutdowns because anything that we can do to contain the spread will help keep the, the virus in check more broadly and then we won't have to go back through the pretty severe uh, lockdowns that we saw earlier this year. If you can't test everybody every day, you just have to assume people have it. You wear a mask as like a public precaution. I think that's right. And then the other thing on the testing front, you know, we have a lot of clients who say to us, how often do I need to be testing my tens of thousands of workers? And the honest answer is daily. It's anytime they're coming into the building or starting a shift. New York State just went to require nursing home workers to be tested twice per shift. Now, how you actually implement that, execute that, and then track the test results for all those employees, I think many are still struggling to figure that out. The second holy grail, if you will, is that from a testing perspective, we can get to like the 10 cent dipstick, kind of think of your home pregnancy test, very simple and easy to administer test with rapid results is what we're after to be able to test quickly and at sufficient scale across a large population. There are some technologies that we've seen come on the market in the last month or so that point to the ability to do that over time, but it could be, you know, August before we have those kinds of tests available. So it could be August till we have tests like that available. There were tests early on, people were touting in-home tests, whatever, but they had a lot of, there was a lot of reliability problems. Is that fair? I think that's fair. And then there's also the compliance problem, because let's say I take the test at home, and if I don't like what the result says, what do I tell the employer? And how does the employer know that I'm actually telling you what happened? And then how does the employer kind of link that to my employment records via Workday or whatever to keep track of it over time? But the companies themselves could be deploying those if they were readily available and reliable. Yes. So we're, yes. our hope is that some of those come online sooner. Now, the challenge we've got is the blunt force approach we took to shutting down geographies, which quite frankly, I wouldn't have wanted to be a policymaker during those days because the truth was nobody was listening to public health officials. Like we had people out there talking about what the problem was. But the average person's like, yeah, whatever. I think you're blowing this out of proportion. Right. So on one level, you had no choice but to clamp down with a, with like basically hammer the thing with a baseball bat. Despite the uncertainty, despite the fact that there is still risk, everyone's had to start opening up, recognizing that there is risk, but there is great, great risk if we simply allow our economy to be flattened over 12 months, right? Not all jobs can be done remotely. So we've started opening up more selectively in terms of prioritizing and focusing with the expectation that we have to accept a certain level of risk. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's very fair. And it's, it is a struggle for people to think through those trade-offs because there's a lot of discussion around like, well, what's the cost of a life? And yet at this point, we're looking at such significant, serious effects on the economy on state tax revenues, on their ability to provide social services to the impoverished, that it becomes this vicious cycle that you have to reopen in order to be able to pull things back up. Right. There's no one simple solution. This is, this is not a right. time when you want to be sitting in one of those seats having to do it. So, so we wind up opening up with uncertainty. It's interesting because I know as you and I were debating this weeks ago, watching some of the early plans, I, I sit here in Texas, which is a state that was one of the first to open up. You're in New York which is a state that's got a much slower opening up plan, right? And it's one where the phase one hit from COVID was much more severe. So where I'm sitting here in DFW, we had quite a number of cases, but on a per capita basis, we were nothing close to that. And we never got really close to at all to exceeding the bed capacity. Right. And that's because we had more weeks notice in advance. Like we shut down on a relative basis a lot sooner because we could see what was happening other places. One of the things as we've been discussing with folks, like I had a conversation with the FT and we were talking about what this means. Because I think a few weeks ago when you and I were having conversations with CEOs about what to do, literally three, four weeks ago, or maybe four weeks ago, people were still saying things like, what's going to happen? When are we going to open up and get back to normal? And I think you and I were going, wait a second, 
people are going to open up or the governments are going to set policy in place, but really that's just the umbrella. And in fact, given everything you said about availability of testing, about the fact that it is still very contagious and it's out there, we don't have the therapeutics that completely contain the severe cases, and we don't have a vaccine anywhere close at the moment. With all those factors, we're relying a lot on the private sector. Businesses making smart choices. The interplay between the private sector and the public one is very tricky, for lack of a better word, because private sector employer may say, I'm doing all the right things. I am doing screenings before my employees come into a building. I'm asking everyone to wear masks. I'm doing testing at the beginning of every shift. But my people don't work in a bubble or don't live in a bubble, rather. So they're also circulating in a community and they may pick it up from a family member or someone else who's perhaps not in a different situation work-wise. And then if that takes off in a community, they risk facing a subsequent shutdown. And I think if we've learned anything from the last three months, it's that policymakers, I think, are thinking through what else can we do to avoid a shutdown? What are all the things that we could bring to bear to be able to keep the economy moving forward? Because the disruption that that would precipitate and then the uncertainty and anxiety that that then engenders is, is devastating. Basically, employers are faced with this challenge of market by market, location by location. How risky is it? What do I do? There are some businesses, you're either shut down or you're in, right? Like you can't manufacture a car from home, for instance, or you can't serve food at a restaurant virtually. So there's some kinds of businesses that literally the entire revenue stream just grinds to zero if you can't have people in a physical place. And so in some ways we'd been advocating, like we need to let those people take up the available slots of circulation in the workplace if we hope to be able to open up economies, but still actually mitigate what the uncontained risks would otherwise look like. Like if we went from zero circulation to 100% of what was circulating before, we would quickly see a run up, right? There's no reason that subsequent peaks or subsequent infection phases look lower than phase one if you're not careful. So that's an important point though, because they can look lower if you're careful. Even things like wearing masks in public and trying to adhere to some social distancing helps a ton. Right, so we can make them lower. But if, yes. we're not, if we don't actually take on those personal obligations or think about how much we want in circulation and we're not wearing masks and people are back to circulating amongst their friends or at work in the same way, there's no reason the spike doesn't go back up just as high or higher right. than it was. So that's what we're managing. And so as we've started talking with employers, I think they've started to recognize. So the ones who have no choice are figuring out and trying to navigate how do I bring people back to a manufacturing line safely? What do I do there? How do I mitigate their risk? How do I mitigate my risk as an employer and all those things? And I think what people are starting to realize is with knowledge workers, when they start to start imagining, like in the beginning, people were like, I've got a red team and a blue team or an A team and a B team, and we can go up to 40%. They start looking at the complexity of what that entails. And they start saying, you know what, to the degree that we were managing to work from home effectively, a lot of, if I can keep things out of the office, it makes my problem a lot simpler, right? Like we were doing some analysis with clients looking at, if you didn't want to crowd elevators, it could take hours for people to get from the lobby up to their offices. 40% right. of the workforce comes in on the same day. So suddenly what sounded like a good idea starts getting really complicated. And I think employers are wrestling a lot with that now. What, what is your thought on that? What are you hearing? I'm hearing very similar. So some employers in New York City are wrestling with building requirements that only one person be in an elevator at a time. So if you think about like, am I going to be queuing up on the street for an hour to get into the building, six feet apart, and then once I'm in the building, there's no break room available. There's no common gathering spaces. So a lot of the community and social aspect that you got from being in an office is not going to feel the same. 
And then what if I want to leave for lunch? Well, what's open to support me? If only 20% of the workforce is back in an office building, I'm not sure that the local restaurants are going <laughs> to be fully open and running to support that. There's bifurcation in that knowledge worker workforce, right? And it's causing employers to have to ask questions about their employees' personal lives that they have, you know, either historically not been allowed to ask or it's been looked down upon to ask. So for knowledge workers who have like a home that's large enough that they can be working from home and have some space between them and whoever else might be in the home, that's one thing. Some knowledge workers are on very low incomes actually. And they can't really work at home comfortably. Or maybe they've got a couple of kids at home who are also doing distance learning at the same time and everyone's gathered around the same dining room table. So employers are having to ask questions of their workforce, you know, first at an anonymous level, but to understand, like, what's your setup at home like? Are you safe at home, right? <laughs> maybe there's some that we need to prioritize bringing back earlier for a whole host of reasons they hadn't really considered being their domain or their business right. previously. And can you be productive at home? Like, we've got a ton of people who are working from home who are also full-time teachers to their school-aged children or daycares are shut down and they're literally the daycare to toddlers and infants while trying to do a full-time job, none of which makes it really easy. We've started talking about this synchrony that's required to bring everything back online together. And it's like, okay, if you want the some part of the workforce to be back in the office, you need the childcare in place. Maybe there's gig economy workers who are also supporting that family or childcare situation in different places. Are the colleges back online? So you've got part-time college students playing certain roles. All those different pieces, if they don't come back online together, you're going to have gaps. They're going to have to be filled as we move into this rough 12 months. And so it's interesting that you, you raise that, Helen, you say the rough 12 months. Solutions that companies had in place that worked in the crisis or can work for six, eight, nine weeks they don't necessarily scale. Like we kind of got yeah. by the level of stress, mental health and well-being, anxiety, stress in this like highly compressed situation people are finding themselves. The stopgap measures we've been using won't work if this thing scales for a bunch of people needing to work from home for the next eight or nine months for extended periods of time. If there's no camp for children or if elementary schools, schools in general go back at a different pace or staging. And I think what we're finding is employers need to be thinking about that and they need to be doing more than just sort of passing around articles and sharing tips and tricks, right? I think we found people are realizing the degree of fatigue that video conferencing creates by the end of the day, yeah. Yeah. right? That, that it's not what we did. We, we, don't, we don't know how to create engaging or effective meetings. What we did was we took everything that used to be face-to-face -face and we just shoved a video screen in front of it for all intents and purposes over six to nine weeks, right? It's yeah. not like we've trained or upskilled ourselves, and we certainly haven't learned through years of practice how to make a virtual environment actually engaging and work effectively. When do you need to be on the computer screen versus when should you just be on the phone? How do you manage when people need to convene together versus when people are working independently? I think these are all skills we're trying to figure out that will really strain employers over the coming months or employers will need to invest in, I suppose, if we're going to keep an environment like this that's hybrid for a while. And so much of this is about adaptive leadership and being willing to iterate the design over and over and recognizing that like, you know, what works for this month may not work for next month. And it's okay. It's okay to abandon it and try something else or to take what the pieces of it that worked used and keep them because we're all figuring this out as we go. One of the other things we're starting to see and we're encouraging our clients to think about is how do you use this unfortunate crisis, but how do you step back 
and take some additional perspective and really rethink what the new normal looks like and what going back starts to look like. And I don't mean just back to the office or back to work. This crisis resulted in a whole bunch of people having to work under very strange conditions, yet in many instances, we're still able to get things done. It's amazing the resiliency. People are still selling things to clients or customers remotely. Things are still progressing in certain pockets. So it raises a real question some executives are thinking through, which is, what is the real value add we do? Where do we need space? Where do we not? What are the things we assumed about our business and who does what that might change as we think about it? Like we had assumptions where for years, people believed that the executive assistant has to sit right outside the executive's door. These are really high cost real estate in certain places. And the question is, if remote support works, does that untether that assumption? Do you need a lot less square footage to do something? We have physician clients and we have hospital systems where some of the physicians who were most opposed to telehealth, having been forced to do it, are suddenly realizing it's actually a lot easier in some instances, not in all, but like some are realizing they really like it and customers really like it, right? So we should be doing more of it. So I think executives now are really having to rethink some of the core assumptions they have about where they source talent, about what needs to be local versus what can be remote, about assumptions they make about what drives their culture. And I think we're encouraging clients to really think that through so that when they come out the other side, their business is um, not only intact, but ideally stronger. What are some of the things you're hearing? So there's a handful of measures we expect to see working together in concert over the next year or more as we journey through this long haul of suppression. We said for a while that there's nothing fundamentally different about June 1st versus March 1st from a coronavirus pandemic perspective, in that we don't have a vaccine or a direct treatment yet, but we do have knowledge and awareness. We know that asking folks to wear masks and maintain social distancing in public, especially in tight and closed spaces, can help slow the spread. We really believe that testing and efficient contact tracing, perhaps a hybrid of manual shoe leather tracing and mobile app tracing with some privacy protections in place, is a way to manage the spread of the disease without resorting to blunt lockdown measures because you can pounce on an outbreak as it emerges. We know that segmenting the population so that the elderly and or the immunosuppressed are shielded will help mitigate the spread as well as fatalities. And we also think that as companies build back better, many of them may work to be less reliant on office environments which bring together crowds in close proximity and enclosed spaces than they were previously. All of these things taken together could become a quite manageable way to live with the novel coronavirus until we have a vaccine or a direct therapeutic treatment. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's show, we invite you to subscribe so you'll be notified whenever a new episode goes live. For more information, follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.